It's always such a happiness to come to Fredericksburg, Texas. My parents lived here for a dozen years, and there was a lot of love they received from a lot of people in this town. My mom, when I was walking out the door, she said, Now, Scott, make sure, make sure in that church you say hello to this person, this person, this person, and this person. So I, I, I am going to do that. But uh, my father and mother were so grateful to live here during that, during that period of, of time in their lives. I actually owned a house here for about 10 years. And uh, one, one of the neat memories of Fredericksburg, Texas for me is, and I think there are only nine people in the whole world know this. I learned to juggle in Fredericksburg, Texas. <laughs> yeah, I did it for a very specific objective, to make my children laugh. That's why I did it. So Fredericksburg, it's so good to be here. Thank you for allowing me to come. I am so grateful to be here. Well, Isaiah chapter 2 is uh, the first chapter of a sermon that Isaiah preaches. I'm preaching through Isaiah at home, and I preached on this passage uh, recently, and I was so taken by it and convicted by it and hurt by it and helped by it. I, it seemed to me that I wanted to bring this text to you this morning. And in, in this sermon... Uh, Isaiah is prophesying that God is getting ready to destroy the proud. And what has been happening so far in the prophecy is that Isaiah is calling out to the people and he's saying, the whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. It's a broken people who've been so hurt by sin. And God has been judging them. God has been actually punishing them, bringing them one chastisement after another in order to cause them to turn, but they will not turn. And in chapter 1, the Lord says, Why should you be stricken again? You'll revolt more and more. You've been chastised so many times and you don't even listen. You don't even change when I bring hardship against you to make you turn to me. And so... In, in, this, in this chapter here, Isaiah is exposing this sin of pride. He's dealing with this whole matter of exalting yourself. And there are two things that are happening here in this text. First of all, that God is going to destroy the proud. And he is going to bring chastisements against our pride. And the second thing is that he will be exalted. These two things are, are held in, in a complementary way throughout this passage of Scripture, that, that God is going to come and, and deal with pride, but at the same time, he will be exalted. And it's so important that we understand both of these in, in a message like this, that he, he will not only be exalted in his judgment, but he'll also be exalted in his mercy. And so the whole matter before us here is that we would somehow see our self-sufficiency, we would see our pride, but that we wouldn't stay there, but that we would see his sufficiency, we would see him on his throne, we would see him as high and lifted up, and to see that God is full of mercy. And what we find in this passage is that God gives us both the medicine and the food he gives us a stiff dose of reality about who we really are. But on the other hand, he extends his own glory. He extends his own 
exalted son to us. But the truth is, God judges the, pro- the proud, that God, the lofty looks of man will be humbled, as it says in verse 11. And he says at the very end of this, sever yourselves from, from such a man. And so that's, that's the basic context here. What, what, we, what we learn at the beginning of, of chapter 1 is that there's this remarkable vision of heaven. And it's a picture of the people of God going to the mountain of the Lord. And they're saying to one another, to one another come, let us go into the mountain of the Lord. And it says that they'll, they'll flow to the mountain of the Lord. And the Hebrew word that Isaiah uses there, it, it really speaks of a beautiful image of of people headed in a certain direction. It pictures what you see when you stand on, on the seashore and the sun is going down and, and you see the, the shining coming toward you off of the sun across the water and, it's, and it's, it's shimmering toward you and all the little waves are like little heads coming to you. That's the picture that, that they're flowing to the Lord in happiness. They're coming to the river of delights to come and, and drink of the waters of salvation. It's a beautiful picture. But then Isaiah shifts and, he's, and he speaks of his own time and his own people. And he says, but the problem is my people are filled. He says they're, they're filled to overflowing with so many things that they can't see the glory of his name. They, they don't understand the beauty of this shining uh, reality before them that they, that they ought to be saying, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. And he says they are filled with four things. Uh, they, are, they are filled with eastern ways in verse 6, if you see that. Filled with eastern ways. And they are, they are, they are filled with treasures in verse 7. In other words, they're trusting in their wealth. And, and thirdly, they're relying on their political prowess. Their land is full of horses and there's no end to their chariots. They're looking at all kinds of human ways to rescue them in verse 7. And, and their idolatry is also filling them in verses 8 and 9. Their land is full of idols. They worship the work of their own hands. And the word that Isaiah uses here for idols is the word that means it literally means nothing. You're filled with really nothing. And so he's casting this vision of the reality of their lives that they are filled. But that's not a complete description of the problems that he is wanting to bring before them. And, and, and what it is, is there is more. There's a secret sin, sort of. It's kind of a secret sin. And it's the sin of pride. And so Isaiah then takes us to a whole different mountain. And it's, it's the lofty mountain high places of the pride of man. You know, a friend of mine at our church says that pride is the mastermind of all the sins. And he's absolutely correct. Every sin is a sin of pride. Every sin is a sin of rejecting the goodness of God, choosing some pleasure greater than God. And, and so that is what Isaiah is dealing with, this mastermind of all the sins of mankind. You know, uh, the purpose statement of uh, our friends at Chapel Library, many of you are probably aware of Jeff Pollard there at Chapel Library, 
their, their purpose statement reads like this. Our purpose is to humble the pride of man, exalt the grace of God in salvation, and promote real holiness in heart and life. Well, this purpose statement, it captures really with perfection this entire passage of Scripture that is before us. And their pride is the basis of all of their false worship. It's the basis of why they wanted to fill themselves up to overflowing so there was no room left for anything else. It's the reason for it all. You know, perhaps, you know, it is uh, for us today that God, God has us before this text. It's a miracle. It's a miracle that we're here to further show us who we are, to expose our pride, to call us to dependence, to call us to humility, so that we would see things rightly in everything. Well, this passage begins in verse 10. And first of all, there's a sarcastic command that's delivered in verse 10. Enter into the rock and hide in the dust from the terror of the Lord and the glory of his majesty. He's saying, go hide, hide in the dust. Well, how do you hide in dust? You can't hide in dust. You can't hide from God at all. The main idea here is that you cannot hide. You'll try to, but you cannot hide. You remember, remember how the police caught the Boston Marathon bomber? Thermal imaging cameras overhead. And I don't know if you saw those pictures. They were so remarkable to me. Here's this, this outline of a boat. And under the cover of the boat, the body of a man, the heat detected from those thermal imaging cameras. Well, God does not need any thermal imaging cameras to see into our hearts at all. Psalm 14 says, He looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who seek God. In Psalm 11, verse 4 It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous. It's impossible to hide from God. Adam goes and hides himself after he ate the forbidden tree, but he cannot hide. Achan tried to hide what he had hoarded, but the eyes of the Lord saw in the ground. And the truth of it is that if, if anyone is pretending that God does not see, they have to remember that God sees everything. Remember in Exodus 33, when Moses hid in the cleft of the rock because the glory of God was passing before him? And what Moses did is what every righteous man wants to do. When a righteous man sees the glory of God, he's not high and lifted up. And he's not self-confident. He sees his weakness and he, he knows his unworthiness. And he's aware of his sinfulness and he's humbled by his depravity. And he's not proud of his past. He's not proud of himself. 
because he knows that he cannot stand. Moses did the right thing when he hid himself in the cleft of the rock because he knew who he really was. And so when we understand the glory of God, we know that we cannot hide. And our own sinfulness is exposed before God. That's exactly why the Apostle Paul said in Colossians chapter 3, verse 3, For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's the only place to hide. You can't hide anywhere else. You can try to hide in your, hide in your respectability and your image and your reputation, your good works, all the marvelous relationships that you've developed, the things that you've built, but there's really only one hiding place, and that is to be hidden with Christ in God. This is one of the most beautiful elements of the gospel. You can only say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is only Christ can deliver you from this body of death. And that's why Isaiah himself, when he appeared in the temple... And he saw the Lord. What did he do? He said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And the point of this verse is that you cannot hide. Your pride will be exposed. It will be exposed. Somebody once said that if sin was blue, then everything you said would have a tint of blue in it because of the depth of our depravity and our sinfulness. Well, you might also say that if, if pride were yellow, then everything you have ever done would have a little bit of yellow in it. And that's what is being said here. It cannot be hidden. You might be able to hide it from man for a while, but it can never be hidden from God. So after this sarcastic command is given, then a maxim really is delivered. It's a maxim about pride. It's a truth that stands about pride. In verses 11 and 12, the lofty looks of man shall be humbled. That's the maxim. And then he continues, the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything proud and lofty, upon everything lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Well, not only can you not hide, a couple of other things happen. The lofty looks will be humbled, number one, and God will be exalted. It's interesting that he identifies something that is normal to us, the way that we look, the way that we look at people. It's, there's loftiness in it. And he says that these, these ways that we look at people will be brought low, but God alone will be exalted. He's speaking of a heart of, of loftiness. It's interesting that in the previous verse, in verse 9, Isaiah documents that they're bowing down to idols, they're humbling themselves before idols. And now this is called loftiness. It's interesting the way he speaks of it here. And he begins here with this illustration of what how, one way that pride looks like. And it's, it's the way that you look. Well, the Bible uses 
a number of words to explain what pride is. Conceit, arrogance, haughtiness, and loftiness. The, the word for pride in Hebrew here is the word gi, which means to lift up or to be on high. That's literally what the word pride means. And, and the word is used sometimes for physical things like the rising of smoke or the rising of waves or the flying of an eagle or even you know the altitude of the stars. It's used in terms of physical phenomena, but it's also used for spiritual things. And it's used in the context of lifting up the eyes or lifting up the heart of, or exalting yourself or, or putting yourself above God or above other people. The whole idea of pride is to be above, to be above God or to be above your brother or your sister. You know, there was a church that had this running in it. It was the Corinthian church. And the apostle Paul said, you're puffed up. It's the same idea. You know, elders are not supposed to have it. Um, and I can tell you by experience that though elders are not supposed to have it, they struggle with it. Every elder I've ever known who's an honest one struggles with his pride. But in the qualifications for elders, Paul tells us that elders must not be novices. Why? In 1 Timothy 3, because lest they be puffed up with pride and fall into the same condemnation as the devil. So it's all about self-exaltation and, and self-promotion. This is why in James we read that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives more grace. He resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And James says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. And in this passage, we know that God battles against it. And that's why he says in verse 11, And the day of the Lord of hosts shall come upon everything, everything proud and lofty. And it shall be brought low. Now, pride is a real problem. There are two major problems with pride. It's really hard to detect in yourself. And it's hard to kill. That's what Richard Baxter said. Let me read his words. Pride is a deep-rooted and self-preserving sin. And therefore, it is harder to be killed and rooted out than other sins. It hinders the discovery of itself. I'm going to read that again. It hinders the discovery of itself. That's the pernicious nature of pride. It will not allow the sinner to see his pride when he's reproved. Neither will it allow him to confess it if he sees it, nor to loathe himself and to forsake it. Baxter continues, even when he recognizes all the evidences of pride in others, he will not see it in himself. When he feels himself despising reproof 
and knows that it is a sign of pride in others, yet he will not know it in himself. If you would go about to cure him of this or any other fault, you shall feel that you are handling a wasp or a snake. Yet when he is spitting the venom of pride against the reprover, he does not perceive that he is proud. This venom is part of his nature, and therefore it is not felt as harmful or poisonous in his own mind. This is the difficulty with pride. It, it blinds you to the sin of pride itself. Jonathan Edwards battled with his own pride. He said this of himself, What a foolish, silly, miserable, blind, deceived, poor worm am I when pride works. Pride causes so many beautiful things to die. Edwards himself believed that the Great Awakening died because of pride in men's hearts. But pride is, is very simple. It's thinking more highly of yourself than you ought. It's thinking so highly of your opinions. It's thinking so highly of your knowledge, your words. In pride, you overestimate your virtues. You feel overly deserving of comforts and privileges. But God judges pride. He judges it in so many ways really close to home. How many marriages do you know have been destroyed by pride? Or how about your marriage? Has it been hurt in any way by pride somewhere? How many churches have been destroyed by pride? How many businesses have been destroyed because of pride? You know, Pride is the primary cause of business failure. Okay? Now, when you get beyond you know, the simplest reason that the math is not just working, if you get beyond a few simple things, pride is the chief cause of a failure in business. You know, it could be what people have called the Bathsheba syndrome. When men become very good at what they're doing and they, and they do well and they have enormous resources like David and he's walking on the top of that roof and he, can, he feels like now he can do anything he wants. He's lived for a long time. He could buy anything he wanted. He could go anywhere he wanted. He could build anything he wanted to build. It didn't really matter. And now he felt that he could do anything he wanted. And so he sees Bathsheba and it destroys his life. The Bathsheba effect affects men. Absolutely, it does. You've seen it. How about the time allocation syndrome? You, you, you don't manage your time properly. Pride is at the root of not managing your time correctly. Or how about the overspending syndrome? Uh, wanting the trappings of luxury. It's all about pride. These, kind, these are the kinds of things that destroy businesses. The comfort shopping syndrome where you get some happiness for buying something and pride is really at the root of it. It feels good for just a few minutes, 
the self-righteousness syndrome where you feel you're superior and you're the only wise one in the room and you don't listen to anybody and your business dies because of it. There's so many things that die on pride. Yeah, I remember somebody said one time that success in a business is inversely proportional to the size of the entrepreneur's desk when he starts the company. Little desk, big success. Big desk, maybe not. Pride. It's all about pride. You know, people start a business and they never bother to examine what the market conditions are. Why did they never bother to examine it? Pride. Or maybe they examined the market conditions and they said, well, I'm, I'm so good, it doesn't matter. I can overcome all of this. It's pride. And they say, yeah, there, there are other people out there doing this in the market. I'm, I'm going to go do it. And they have zero experience doing it. And they go and they lose absolutely everything. It was, it was just exalting their own understanding of themselves and not really humbly finding out what was really true about what was going on. But God, God judges pride. God brings down the, pro, the proud in so many different ways. Now, has God ever brought judgment or discipline or chastisement, a hardship of some kind against you because of your pride? And I think we need to really make sure we understand what Isaiah is saying here. What he is saying in this passage is that the pride of man is connected to his chastisement. It's connected to discipline. It's connected to hard things that happen in your life. Pride and judgment and difficulty and collapse are connected. And God says, I, he is going to bring down the proud. We like to disconnect ourselves from the consequences that we're in the midst of. We don't want to connect our troubles with our sins. We want to see ourselves as different. We don't want to think that this hardship upon us is really having anything to do with us. We just don't like to think that way. We, we're naturalists at heart. We, we want to think really that, you know, there's these other forces that are going on and it has to do with really everybody else, but not certainly not us. Certainly God is not trying to bring us to our knees and, and bring us to the end of ourselves so that all of our end would be in him. Certainly God wouldn't do that to me because, because I, I'm such a nice person. And I have, I have, I've just done so many things. And we, we do this when we think of God the way the deist or the atheist does. The, the deist and the atheist believes that he has little to do with life on earth. That God is not active. When you, when you, when you disconnect yourself from the difficulties that you're having, you're really making God weak. You're, you're acting like God doesn't exist. You're acting like God doesn't care about you. You're acting like the things that are happening to you aren't from God. You're acting like he's not sovereign. You're acting like he doesn't control absolutely everything. And it is connected to you. That's, that's the problem with pride. We, we can't even see when God's judging us and trying to turn us in a different direction. And we're like those people in the days of Isaiah where, where God says, why, sh- why should I strike you again? You'll just revolt more and more. I'm trying to slow you down. I'm trying to move you toward me. I'm trying to bring you to my mountain, but you're up high on your own mountain. You think so highly of yourself, but 
Don't you see what's happening to you? Don't you see the wounds? Don't you see the bruises? Don't you see the putrefying sores? I'm quoting from chapter 1. And so after announcing that the day of pride will be judged, then Isaiah gives a number of examples of exactly what pride looks like. He's not just going to leave us in the dark. He's going to actually name things, ways that pride is detected. Verses 13 through 17 give us a number of emblems of pride, ways that pride shows itself. And the first, these emblems are the things that make you think that you're very special. You know, uh, they're the ways that you might try to prove to the world how wise and wonderful and successful and good and everything that you might be. It's about being so special. First, our impressive natural resources. In, in verse 13, upon the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, upon all the oaks of Bashan. This was a, a beautiful part of the world. These huge, beautiful trees known all over the ancient world. And this, this whole idea here is that how people are, they're so proud of their, of their region and, and the natural resources there that are around them. And, and often we, we just want to move to the most wonderful, coolest place in the world so that somehow the coolness would rub, up on, rub off on us. Well, it's not wrong to move to a beautiful place. But why? Why? Was it, was it so that that place would just identify you with such powerful and good things and it would shine on you somehow? You, you find your ideal location, you know. Maybe it's Hawaii or the mountains or the rolling hills of Virginia or the beach or some, you know, some gorgeous place. Well, I, I, I feel like I live in a gorgeous place. The world is so beautiful, but... But is it an emblem of your pride? Is it, is, it a, is it an expression of just how special you want everyone to think of you? The wonders of nature here are then set aside. And then the works of man are brought into the focus. There are these technical accomplishments, these, these towers, these, these high towers. Verse 15, upon every high tower, upon every fortified wall. These, these are the works of man's hands, the, thing that, the things that men do to protect themselves or to exalt themselves in, in different ways. You know, men love to build things for, for different reasons. You know, when I walked in here this morning and went to First Light, I was so astonished when Chris asked us to open to Proverbs 18. And he actually quoted four places in scripture that I'm going to speak of in this message. I was astonished. I thought, Lord, this man is opening up the door for this whole principle here. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. The rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall in his own mind, just in his own mind. That's all it is. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. He who answers a matter before he hears it, it is folly and shame to him. Here, the writer of Proverbs brings all these different matters of pride, the way that you use your tongue, the way you shoot your mouth off, 
the way you think your wealth is protecting you. There are all these different ways that he's bringing these about. You know, there are so many works of man in, in Scripture to help us understand the pride of man. There's the Tower of Babel that Chris referred to this morning, built in defiance and pride to God, to, so that men would make a name for themselves. They didn't really care. They didn't want to run into the name of the Lord. There was a name for themselves. That's what they wanted. There's Nebuchadnezzar who stood back and he saw all the wonders and he said, is this not great Babylon which I have built? And all of a sudden he's a beast and his hair is growing and he's living under the rain and the dew for an awfully long time. These here, these towers, they're ways that you protect yourselves from disaster. These are These are technologies that men use to try to protect themselves, to gain security. It's like that rich man who he's standing in the security of his wealth in his own mind. God does not see any security in it at all. It'll it'll take wings in due time and bring him maybe hopefully back to the place where he's crying out to God again instead of just trusting in his riches. God judges pride. The lofty looks of man will be humbled. And then the third emblem of pride are these advancements. I'm just going to call them advancements in transportation. Upon all the ships of Tarshish and upon all the beautiful sloops, the loftiness of man shall be bowed down and the haughtiness of men shall be brought low. The Lord alone will be exalted. It's this, it's this picture of, of these beautiful ways of getting about. I don't know about you, but I think the cars are getting better and better looking, you know, with every year. They're, they're just phenomenal. The ways of transportation, you know, when I was walking to go get on the airplane, I was looking at all these planes stacked up. They were beautiful. They were enormous. They're astonishing. And every time we take off, I think, how in the world? This is my father's world, taking all these fat people up in the air with these thousands and Hundreds of thousands of pounds and fuel. How does that happen? You know. Advancements in transportation are really astonishing. There are many illustrations of pride in the book of Isaiah itself. I've read it uh, in preparation for the preaching through it a number of times. But you have in, in Isaiah 14 the pride and the, the exaltation of Lucifer. Where Lucifer... Is, is, is saying five things. I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne. I will sit on the mountain of the congregation. This is self-centeredness. I will ascend to the heights of the clouds. This is self-exaltation. I will be like God, verse 14. This is self-delusion. This is just the self-expansionism of the devil. And You know, it's interesting... The devil wanted so much. You know, the Lord Jesus could have been the wealthiest, most powerful man that ever lived. I mean, this, this is the man that he turns water into wine. Uh, he takes five loaves and two fishes and feeds thousands of people. He gets tax money out of the mouth of the fish. He could have been the wealthiest man in an instant. He could have done so much. He could have commandeered all the armies of the world. He already had the heavenly hosts. He, was, he is the Lord of Sabaoth, the Lord of the armies of heaven. 
not just the armies of heaven. He can change a man's mind in a second, in a nanosecond. He can make everyone get up and walk out of this room at a certain speed according to his own design. He can do that right this second if he wanted to. He could take this building away. but He could do anything he wants. But the Lord Jesus Christ didn't do everything that he could do, did he? He just did the things that he should have done. He, he walked with 12 men. He limited himself. He didn't become the wealthiest entrepreneur. He didn't become the greatest general. He limited himself to holy things. He spent his resources and his time on holy things. He was the humblest man. God judges the pride. The lofty looks of man will be humbled. There's also not only the pride of of Lucifer, but there's the pride in the appearance of women. In chapter 3, the daughters of Zion are actually given as an example of pride. Pride in appearance, the way you dress, the way you strut as a girl. I mean, that's really what Isaiah is talking about. In chapter 3, verse 16, he says, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they walk with outstretched necks and wanton eyes, walking and mincing as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion and will uncover their, their, part, their secret parts. In that day, the Lord will take away their finery, the jingling anklets and the scarves and the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets and the veils, the headdresses, the leg ornaments and the headbands, the perfume boxes, the charms and the rings the nose jewels, the festal apparel, and the mantles, the outer garments, the purses, and the mirrors, the fine linen, the turbans, and the robes. Anything else to be mentioned, possibly, that a woman might use in order to jingle and jangle her pride about, just to make herself look so good? And just as a a young man might say, yeah, these girls do this all all the time. Think again. Men do that as well trying to look so cool, trying to look so hip. I have, I have a dear friend who, who, uh, uh, who says the net present value, he's a finance guy, the net present value, the net present value of hip clothing is zero. That's what he says. But men, men try to do this as well. There's the pride of nations in Isaiah 16. We have heard of the pride of Moab. He is very proud. And then he's going to be destroyed. There's the pride of King Uzziah. He's, he's a case study, really, in spiritual pride. Uh, in, in 2 Chronicles 26, which, which was broached here just this morning in first light, is the story of, of Uzziah. And he, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt, it says. He built what? What did he build? Towers in Jerusalem at the corner gate, in the valley gate at the corner buttress of the wall, and he fortified them. And he goes on about all the interesting things he did with weaponry and how to throw giant rocks off the wall to kill people. He was really a a remarkable man with so many interests and deployed resources in all kinds of directions. But he got proud. He got spiritually proud. And one day he decided to do what he never should have even tried. He went into the temple to offer incense. And Azariah chases him down with 80 priests to stop him. And they're trying to stop him. And he's angry and he's throwing them off. And in his anger, immediately, he's covered in his face with leprosy. 
And then they ushered him out of there. It was spiritual pride. He, it says in Second Chronicles 16, but he was strong. His heart was lifted up to destruction. He transgressed against the Lord by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense in the altar. Well, Isaiah suffered from spiritual pride. Hezekiah, later on in the book of, of Isaiah, is an example of pride in his possessions. He was so proud of his possessions. You know, God was, he was a godly man. He really was. He cried out to God that he would, he would let him live for 15 more years, and God gave him more years of his life. He was about to die, and he knew it, but God gave him more years. But he, he never really abandoned all of his pride, and, and one day when, 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 when uh, an entourage from Babylon was there, he wanted to show off his wealth. And so he took them into the temple and showed all his treasures, the pure gold here, the remarkable jewels that were, you know, laden in the temple. And he comes out and a prophet says, have you lost your mind? These men are going to come back and steal everything that you've just shown them. It was pride in his wealth and he lost it as a result. There are many examples of pride. You know, one of the remarkable things about pride is that it seems to be so easy to detect in other people, but it's just not that easy to detect in ourselves. That's the real problem with it. Don't, don't think that you can always discern pride in other people. Don't look, don't look at a person's wealth and think that it's just automatically tied to pride. Think again. Think about Job. Think about Abraham. Was it pride? No. Don't think that you can always discern it in other people. That's what Aaron and Miriam tried to do. They believed that they could see pride in Moses. And they said to Moses, do you think you're the only one that has something to say around here? What about us? What about the rest of us? Are you the only one? And God struck them and God told, told the world that Moses was the humblest. He was the meekest man who ever lived. So we, we need to recognize that the things that look like pride to us, they may not always be pride. It actually might be that God has given someone a responsibility to do something and he gives them resources to do it. It may be that God has given someone a responsibility to speak to a matter and he might speak boldly. Don't just automatically think it's pride because you're not all that well equipped to detect pride in others. You're actually supposed to detect it in yourself. And then in verse 18, God's response to this pride is announced. But the idols he shall abolish. He's going to put an end to it. They'll be taken away. They'll be destroyed. Now you think about that for a minute. All the things that you've accumulated around yourself to make yourself look good, they will all be taken away. And if you've built your identity around those things, what happens to your identity? Your identity is destroyed. You're no longer, you no longer have an identity. This is, this is why people, when they, when they might lose everything, and guess what? Often men lose everything. They also lose their faith. And they, they also lose their place in the world because that's all they had. The idols are taken away. They're abolished. They're gone. This is what God will do to all of our idols. This is why amassing our identity around anything as a result of our pride is, is so dangerous because it, it means that you end up with nothing. This is why God has given 
particularly to those to preach the word of God, to name the idols, to destroy the idols, to, to, to hold them up and say, this is idolatry and smash the idols so that people aren't left with nothing. Because after all, idols are nothing. He will take everything you built your identity on through pride, the wood and the hay and the stubble. That's why Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19 say, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Better to be of a humble spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. And so there's got to be some accurate appraisal of man. Verse 22 gives the appraisal. They shall go into the holes of the rocks and into the caves of the earth from the terror of the Lord and from the glory of his majesty when he arises to shake the earth mightily. And these idols end up being despised. They'll cast them away. They'll cast away their idols of silver in verse 20, their idols of gold in verse 20. And they'll they'll throw them to the moles. They'll throw them into the bats. They won't care about them anymore. You won't care about anything you built in pride. You won't care about it anymore. It won't be of any use at all. It'll be garbage to you. You'll say, throw it to the bat, throw it to the mole. Get it away from me. You will not want it. The term that he uses is really just to cast away, to dispose of, to throw it away because they are worthless. You won't want them anymore. And then there's a call to action in verse 22. Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils. For what account is he? So this is a call to action. Sever yourselves from such a man. That's a command. When you, when you see this, severing yourself is the only rational action. Now, there have been many calls to action in Isaiah so far. In chapter 1, verse 13, it says, Bring no f- more futile sacrifices. Your incense is an abomination to me. Because they were coming to worship on the inside of the house of God, but they weren't obeying him in the outside of the house of God. And therefore, their worship inside of the house of God was totally worthless. And And he says, don't bring any more sacrifices to me into this house until you obey me outside of this house. He also calls in chapter 1, verse 16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, put away the evil from your doings. In chapter 2, verse 5, he says, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us come and walk in the light of the Lord. Remember Jacob? What did Jacob do? Jacob was a deceiver. It's such a remarkable picture. He came before his father who couldn't see anymore. And he he put these skins on his arms and on his body so his father would think that he was someone else. He was walking in darkness and he says, Jacob, Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. And then now Isaiah issues this other call to action. Sever yourselves from such a man whose breath is in his nostrils. There are two ways I think we should think about this. First, you sever yourself from the thinking and the ways of men who nourish their pride. Do not be like them. Understand that you must be different. You cannot throw your lot in them. It doesn't mean that you can't do business with them. It doesn't mean that you can't be with them. But to start thinking about the world like they do 
to accumulate things for their pride, to make themselves look good. That's the mistake. Separate yourselves from that kind of thinking. Separate yourselves from the thinking that intoxicates you for, into promoting yourself all the time. That's the idea. And so much of our pride is aroused because we want to be man-pleasers. We have the fear of man in our hearts. We want to be exalted in the eyes of men. And Isaiah says, sever yourselves from such a man. The other, the other thing I think we should remember is this. You, you are that man. I am that man. Sever yourself. He's the old man. He's the man of the flesh. He's the man that must die. Sever yourselves from anything within yourselves that is high and lifted up. Sever yourselves from that man, either out there or in here. This is just a call to abandon self-indulgence and self-love and self-absorption. This is repentance. I want to give you some applications. Number one, how are we exalting ourselves? Is it, is it true that we judge everything for how it affects us? You know, it's, it's, it's interesting to me. You can take two men that, are, that seem to be opposite and they're really the same man in their heart. You can take the couch potato father, the man with the flipper who does nothing. He has no vision. He really cares about nothing except what his eyes are going to see next. That man and then the successful man who, is, who has much to do. He is, he is very busy. He's very vigorous. He, he's productive and he's successful, but he's really no different from that couch potato man because it's the same thing that drives him. Self-indulgence, self-absorption. It's the same thing, but it looks so different. It's not so simple to say, oh, we're going to go out in the parking lot and see who has the expensive cars. It's just not that simple. The proudest man might have the junkiest car. That's the truth. Measuring everything for how it affects you instead of what it means to God. It can express itself in different ways. Boastful conversation. Self-righteous conversation. It can express itself in the church. The proud man despises small people. Proverbs 14.21 says, He who despises his neighbor sins. Romans 12.16 says, Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord, shun evil. Or as... James wrote about when somebody comes into your assembly and he's not dressed very well. The proud man does not like to be small. The proud man will not listen to counsel. The proud man uses flattery to, to manipulate people. Proverbs 12, 3 and 4 makes that so clear. So this first question, how are you exalting yourself? Because you have to recognize that in the ways that we are exalting ourselves are the ways that we will be brought down. That's what the the passage means. He will bring down the haughty looks of man. This is a promise. Number two, let's ask 
some questions and let's ask them slowly. Question, what has been the effect of pride on my business? Really, what has it been? It might be worthwhile this afternoon to go home and write down the different ways that pride has infected and therefore affected your business. Or what has been the effect of pride on my marriage? You know, this has been perhaps one of the hardest passages of Scripture I've ever had to preach on because there is so much pointing at me. You know, I've thought about the different effects of pride on my marriage, and there, there really are there are a lot. And I, I've... I'm making my list. What has been the effect of pride on your friendships? Do you have any broken friendships? Do you have things that have happened? And the root of the problem really is pride. You haven't really seen it yet. But maybe God will give you eyes if it's appropriate, if he has mercy upon you. What's been the effect of my pride in my church experience? Everything. Everything that happens in church can be affected by pride. Everything can. You know, if it, it, it is, I think, true. If pride were yellow, there would be a lot of things that would have a little bit of yellow on it in every area of life. But what about church life? What's been the effect of pride on my preaching? We have men who preach here. I am preaching here right now. What is the effect of my pride? Even, even on something that is sacred, it's holy, it's designed to bring benefit to everyone else. It's designed to equip, it's designed to comfort, it's designed to terrify, it's designed to draw to living waters. But really, what's the effect of pride on the preaching? What has been the effect of pride on my counseling, the words I use with my brothers and sisters when I'm speaking earnestly with them? What, what has been the effect of pride on my handling of, my, of the money that God has put in my hands? What has been the effect of pride on the clothes I wear, the car I drive, the house I live in, the people I associate, the ones that I greet? What's been the effect of pride there? If pride were yellow, it would be in so many places. You know, um, I, I'm looking out here and I, I see a number of young men out here. It's always exciting and a blessing to me to be able to speak to younger men. And you're, you're seeking a career. Now, here's the question. Is, is what you're seeking because of vanity? Is it, is it simply for the applause that it will get you from the world or from your family or, or even from yourself to, to make yourself high and left? Is that what it is all about? Or is it that God made you in a certain way and you know what you're supposed to do and you have a holy calling. You know who you are. You know how God has built you. You know whether you're a salesman or a task-oriented person. You know whether you're a visionary. You know who you are. 
And you're going to go out in the world and you're going to be who God made you. Or do you just want to exalt yourself? It's a really important question. So many young men, they start off and after a while they find, you know, that their ladder was leaning against the wrong wall. And, and Isaiah is saying, get away from that whole kind of thinking. Don't attach yourselves to those who think like that, who just trust in man's solutions. Come out, be separate. Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man. Isaiah 31 says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for advice. This has to do with trusting in yourself or, or other proud men. Jonathan Edwards gave warnings about pride, and I'm going to conclude this message with his warnings. There are 13 of them. Number one, undiscerned pride is the chief inlet of smoke from hell. It's the door by which the devil comes into the hearts of those who are zealous for the advancement of religion. It's the chief inlet of smoke from the bottomless pit to darken the mind and mislead the judgment the main handle by which the devil has hold on religious persons, and it's the chief source of all the mischief that he introduces. Number two, pride is the last thing revealed to saints. He says it's the last thing in as a sinner that is overborne by conviction. In order, in order of conversion. And here's the saint's hardest conflict, the last thing over which he directly militates against God. It's the most contrary to the spirit of the Lamb of God. It is most like the devil, its father, in a serpentine deceitfulness and secrecy. It lies deepest and is most active and is ready secretly to mix itself with everything. Edwards is saying that it's the last thing that is revealed to you. You know, when I was a younger Christian, I was way, way less aware of any pride than I am now. And I don't think I'm even close to the awareness I need to be in. But sometimes it happens that your, your pride isn't taken down until later in life. Often it's like that. You can ride on the highs you can do so well and then all of a sudden you're cut down and God brings you back to that place where you don't really have anything but Him. It's the last thing to be revealed to saints. Number three, pride is a secret sin. There are many sins of the heart that are very secret in nature and difficulty, difficultly discerned. The psalmist says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. But spiritual pride is the most secret of all sins. The heart is deceitful and unsearchable and nothing so much as this matter. Number four, pride has many lives. Kill it and it will still live. It is a sin that has, as it were, many lives. If you kill it, it will still live. If you mortify and suppress it in one shape, it rises in another. If you think it, it's all gone, Yet it is still there. 
There are a great many kinds of it that lie in different forms and shapes under one another and encompass the heart like the coats of the onion. If you pull off one, there is another underneath. It has many lives. Kill it and it'll keep living. You know, this morning I was walking around this place and looking on the ground. There's all, there's all this flint, all this these hard, small, hard rocks, this flint. And I looked at that as I was walking down this pathway. And I thought, you know, there, there are so, there's so much flint. There's so many hard parts in my heart. Oh, help me. To help me to discern these things. They, it's like, there's one piece of flint and you get rid of that one and you throw it away and there's, there's just another one right in the pathway. You throw that one away and there's another one right, right in front of you. And then you, you take another step and you've just stepped over 50 more. Pride has many lives. Number five, no one is out of danger. Number six, beware of a certain kind of pride, spiritual pride. Number seven, the spiritually proud speak of others' sins. Spiritual pride disposes to speak of others' sins, their enmity against God and his people, the miserable delusion of hypocrites and their enmity against vital piety and the deadness of some saints with bitterness or with laughter or levity or with an air of contempt. And you speak of other people like that. Whereas Christian humility is silent about other people's sins or speaks about them with grief or pity, but never with laughter or cynicism. Number eight, pride is suspicious. Edward says, spiritual pride is very apt to suspect others, whereas a humble saint is most jealous of himself. He is so suspicious of nothing in the world as he is of his own heart. Number nine, the spiritually proud find fault. Number 10, the spiritually proud use harsh language, harsh and severe and terrible language. They are soul murderers and they look upon it as a virtue and a high attainment to behave themselves that way. They say, oh, we must be plain hearted and bold for Christ. We must declare war against sin wherever we see it. We must not mince words in the matter in the cause of God, when speaking of Christ. But Edward says, no, you're just a soul murderer with your words speaking so harshly. Number 11, the spiritually proud are distant. They stand at a distance from others because they think they're better than others. The spiritually proud hang on to injuries. They take great notice of injuries and opposition And they speak of them and they take much notice of their aggravations with an air of bitterness and contempt. Whereas pure and unmixed Christian humility disposes, lets a person go like the Lord Jesus Christ. When reviled, dumb, not opening his mouth, but committing himself to silence and committing himself to him that judges righteously. Christian humility is rough is neither rough nor bitter. Well, all of what we've been doing today really has been a slight against pride. Uh, We've prayed to God. We've said, Our Father, 
who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's really an act to destroy pride, to lift, to lift up the name of God, his name, his holy name, his high tower, not, not the one of our own making. We've, we've humbled ourselves by, by listening to preaching. What the Apostle Paul said was foolishness. The Word of God has such a role in, in exposing and destroying pride. James says, Receive with meekness the implanted Word which is able to save your souls. Paul says to the Corinthians, he says, that the weapons are war, of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. It's the word of God that's really designed to expose our pride, to take down the high thoughts, to bring us, to put us in the place that we ought to be. The word of God has that role. It's such a mighty and wonderful role. So Isaiah, he, he meets us here at a very, very important crossroads. And it's the crossroads of, of trust. Will we trust ourselves or will we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God? And remember, he brings the medicine. He convicts us. He wounds us. He shows us who we really are. And then he brings us the food and he... He nourishes us. He holds out his hand of mercy and he says, I will be exalted. Come, come to my mountain. Come, let us go into the mountain of the Lord. Let's flow together in the, in the goodness of the Lord. Let's come and drink of his rivers of living water. Let's go there. Habakkuk chapter 2, I think, sums it up so well. Behold the proud. His soul is not upright in him. But the just shall live by faith. That's the answer right there. That's the relief. That's the food uh, after the medicine. The just shall live by faith. We're justified by faith. You will never get to the bottom of your pride, Christian. You will never. You will never be able to escape it. You will try to kill it and it will come back. But a Christian says, oh, Lord, have mercy on me. A Christian says, the blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed me from all unrighteousness. The Christian says, I've been justified by faith, not by any works of the law. The Christian says that the blood of Jesus Christ has vanquished all of my sins, my past sins, all the pride that I've had, all the things that have been lifted up. Everything that I've ever done, all the yellow that I've thrown into this world, the blood of Jesus Christ, he's come and he's washed it white as snow to those who repent and turn to him. And he takes your sins of today, the yellow that you've been putting over everything you've touched today, and he washes you white as snow. He says, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And all of the sins of pride in your future. He's vanquished all of them. He has satisfied the wrath of God. You've been justified if you've repented and turned to him. And you've seen that your life has changed. And yet you still struggle with pride. But you're making progress. You're seeing more pride 
and you're crying out to God for mercy and you're saying, oh Lord, have mercy on me and heal me. That's the cry of a Christian. You know, how much blue, how much yellow associated with these things is in this room. And I want us to look back and I want us to look inside. But you cannot accurately handle this passage of Scripture without looking up to the Lord Jesus Christ who is exalted. He will be exalted. He will be exalted in His grace. And that's why I was so delighted this morning to begin in first light with Proverbs 18.10, which says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are safe. The rich man's wealth is his strong city, like a high wall in his own esteem. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. But the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Psalm 62, 2, which we reviewed this morning. He only is my rock and my salvation. He is my defense. I shall not be greatly moved. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Surely men of low degree are a vapor. Men of high degree are a lie. If they are weighted on the scales, they are altogether lighter than a vapor. Do not trust in oppression, nor vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. God has spoken once, twice, that power belongs to God. And then finally, also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. I pray that God would give us a a day today contemplating two things. First of all, that we really should carefully ask ourselves how pride has affected us in our businesses, our marriages, our friendship, and even in this church. Bring them before the Lord and then run to his high tower. It's such a beautiful tower, such a strong tower. There's such good food in that tower. Would you pray with me? Oh, Lord. Lord, we are aware of the blessings and the happinesses there are in being laid low. That the proud will be laid low. But the humble will be justified by faith. Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you for sending your son. Thank you for justifying and glorifying your own name. O Lord, today, in such a day as this, the Sabbath day, that it would be such a day of delight, of exposing the poison and relieving it with the blood. Amen.